Good evening. So good to see each one of you this morning, this evening. It's evening time. I know what time it is. It's evening. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're joining us online. I invite you to stand as we sing to our only King forever. Our rock, the only solid ground. The nations rise and fall. Kingdoms once strong now shaken. We trust forever in Your name. The name of Jesus. We trust the name of Jesus.
God, that was our prayer tonight. We know that you are here, and we worship you from the depths of our being this evening. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. Oh, we'll see how great, how great.
sing this as our thanks to you. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of
stand here, we stand in the presence of a holy God. But we also know that as we stand here, that you have graciously invited us into your holy presence. So tonight, as we just sang, you are our Lord. You have risen from the dead, and you are Lord. And you will reign eternally. So we declare you as our Savior tonight and as our King. Now as we dig into your word, we just want to get to know you more, get to know you better and understand what you desire us to be about and how to live the life you've called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Lloyd did a great job on, on finishing up our study last week in, in Luke and being able to move forward. And I'm excited about being able to see what God's going to be doing. It's kind of a, some new starts for us. We'll be doing 1 Corinthians here. And then on Sundays, um, Sunday evenings in our Next Gen Connection, we're starting in 1 John and just being able to see some some things. Uh, I'm super excited, too. On Sunday, we're going to have um, some children dedication. So if you, it's not too late. If you know those that uh, want to do any child dedication, they don't have to be babies, um, but young children. And it's an opportunity for us as a church to be able to pray with you and pray over your kids to be able to just uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon them and upon you to be able to be the good parents that, that God's called you to be. We're beginning this study in 1 Corinthians, and you're saying, well, Carrie, it's out of sorts. It is out of sorts a little bit. Uh, we've been in the Gospels between um, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to do 1 Corinthians, and we're going to jump back into John, and then we'll do 2 Corinthians, kind of break it up a little bit with some of the, the narratives. As we study 1 Corinthians, it's a unique letter in, in a time that we see, and I think we can relate to. In a sense that Paul is writing to a church that had been around for a short period of time, but it was a church that was surrounded by an ungodly influence, a secular influence, and it was impacting them. It was changing them. And they had a lot of questions and concerns, and there were some challenges to the church as they were becoming more carnal, more secularized by their environment. As the world was pushing in, they were pushing away from some of the leadership, and there was a lot of challenges. And so as we take a look at the church of Corinth in Corinthians, one of the things that we need to understand is their situation that's there. So what my intent to do tonight is to give you some background on the church of Corinth, where they're at, uh, where they were at within the structure of their their, their environment, their city, and those kinds of things. And then we're going to do chapters 1 and 2 and how it's laid off. Now, now, the city of Corinth is a bit away from um, Israel and, and Jerusalem. It was located on a narrow strip of land between Pelponis and the mainland of Greece. If I can have the map, that'd be great. So as you can see this, and hopefully you can, we'll kind of point some things out to you. So, so we have Caesarea and Jerusalem that's right here, and it would have been during Paul's second missionary journey. We have Corinth that's way over here, and this is Asia, and so you have Ephesus up there, Athens, it's there. 
And Lord, and Lord willing, we're working on uh, trying to do a Steps of Paul trip that would cover these, these churches that are in this area. You have Ephesus, Pergamos, um, Smyrna in this area. Patmos is right there. But you have Corinth way over there on Achaia. And there's a small smidge of land that's right there. And the reason why Corinth was such a great city, it was known as the master of two harbors. And so they, they were on this isthmus of land that you had to go through Corinth to get from one side to the other, or they would control a harbor to the north or a harbor to the south. And if you've been anywhere where there's a crossroads of land and sea, it's a huge melting pot of all these different kinds of people that would be coming into this area that, that is in this land. Now, Corinth was a Greek-style city, and it flourished for a number of years in the 5th century B.C. It grew to be very large within the structure of the time, but eventually it got into conflict with Rome and the changeover from the Grecian to the Roman Empire. So when there was a changeover from those two empires, there was this collision that took place, and obviously Rome won. Rome won the land, and so it laid dormant. Um, after 146 B.C. when they took it. It laid dormant for about 100 years. But it was such a prized piece of land that Julius Caesar had determined that I need to rebuild this. It was some really, really good real estate within that. So he went and he rebuilt the land in 44 B.C. and turned it into a Roman colony. Now when you take a look at Rome, what Rome would like to do is they would establish these Roman colonies with intention, most of the time, like Caesarea Maritima, which we've been to, and Caesarea Philippi, which we've been to in Jerusalem, what Rome would like to do is to make many Roman colonies all over the place. And preferably, it would look like Rome, a mini Rome. So when we went to Caesarea Maritima, there was an amphitheater theater that was there, a big amphitheater. There was a hippodrome where they would race the horses and all of these things. They didn't have that in Corinth. So it was a Hellenistic um, Grecian kind of culture, but it was still a Roman colony. Um, and again, it was this great, great location where they made lots of money. And what Julius Caesar decided to do was he would, to, he would populate this or repopulate this with what was called freedmen. Freedmen would be people that were slaves at one time but were set free, and he would put them all over there. They would be one step above a slave, and he would populate it with all of these people that would be there and, and keeping them within that structure. It wasn't long before um, prosperity filled the land. Obviously, if you've got a... a prime piece of real estate, and you've got um, all of this money flowing through from the ships coming in, they would come into the ports from either side, and then they would send the, the, the stuff out to Asia and so on. So there was a lot of money. So Corinth became very affluent. Because of its rich Grecian culture and Roman culture and the melting pot, it became known for religion but also because of the Grecian culture, if you remember, in, in the Grecian culture, especially in Athens, it was high in philosophy and wisdom. They would prize philosophy. They would prize this wisdom. They would also prize the arts. But because it was this melting pot, there was a lot of Egyptian and Asian cultic activity. So I want you to think in your mind right now for a minute. What city would you think of that is a port city that has a multifaceted um, culture 
where there's lots of money. Where in the United States would you think of a place like that? I would think New York, Los Angeles, right? But primarily New York, I would think, because it's got all of this shipping that's coming in and all of this money that's coming in and you've got all this culture and all of these things and, and, and just this, this great... So if you were to picture Corinth, it would be much like New York. The difference between New York, though, and Corinth is Corinth was much more into the sensual because of the Grecian culture and the worship and the idols of sex. So now you throw in New York and then you bring in another city that is that is known as Sin City. And, and so what city would that be? That would be Vegas, right? So Vegas used to have the title as Sin City. I think of a number of other cities that I might call Sin City, but Vegas would be one of them. So you think about Vegas that's within that, and then you can bring in some of the um, some of the other artsy kind of things that are all part of it. You might bring in L.A. So if you could picture Corinth as like this mix of New York, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles all put into one, what would you have? <laughs> a mess. You'd have a mess. You'd have a real mess that's in there. And then you bring into that trying to be a Christian. Trying to be a Christ follower within all of this culture. And coming out of that culture, not that you were a Christian that you moved into this culture, but you became a Christian within this culture. And so within this, as Paul would go, Paul's standard of evangelism was to go someplace where the gospel would be most effective. Where can I go to preach the gospel that it would go and be effective, not just in that city, but it would be transferable into other cities? So he would pick large cities or places where there was lots of people. So Corinth was a place that he wanted to go to start the church. And so he would go there and within his journey. One of the things that we know about Corinth is Corinth had a bad reputation. How bad? Really bad. It was said in the, in, under old Corinth with their negative reputation, with their sexual sins, that... If you, were, if you were into these sexual sins and all of these things, that you were, as they would say, Corinthized or Corinthiaizo. It was this idea that you were acting like a Corinthian. It, it was a derogatory term. It wasn't a nice term at all. So if, you were, if someone said, you're acting like a Corinthian, well, we can think of some, probably some derogatory terms. In our, in our world today that would line up with that. And so within this, it was, the sexual sins was the norm for the Corinthian lifestyle. It was part and parcel. The letter of Corinthians, as I said, was written primarily to Gentiles and Hellenistic Jews. These are people that don't have a, a strong Judeo, uh, Judeo background or, or Jewish background. They were Christians that had, had been... Uh, evangelize within this. Um, one of the problems that Paul addresses in this letter is not the problem of the church being in Corinth. The problem that, and the reason why Paul had to write this letter was Corinth had gotten into the church. It wasn't that Corinth was, was or the, 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 the church was in Corinth and they're trying to struggle with all of these things. But they become carnal. 
they become in this place where they were compromising. And there was a lot of issues that were going on within this. Paul saw his ministry as a church planter. He was an evangelist. He would go out and plant churches. And he saw his role not only as the church planter, but the church sustainer until it got onto its feet. We know this because as Paul would plant the church in Ephesus, and Ephesus would struggle, the Ephesian elders would struggle, he would send Timothy over to Ephesus to go and help and straighten them out. Young Timothy, who was his number one disciple in the faith, would have to go and tell these older elders in Ephesus, in the, in, within this, how to straighten things out and how to restructure the church. It's not unusual for the church to have a great start, but have a struggle in hitting a stride after it's been started for a while. Especially as it tries to work out with the, the work of ministry that's there. And so Paul wanted the church to be self-governing and to become mature, but Corinth was immature. They were, they were socially immature, they were morally immature, they were theologically immature. And so as a result of their immaturity or their lack of growing, the world started coming in and they started going back to their old behavior. Now, do you know people like that? Maybe you've struggled with that. Where you come to faith in Christ and you come to this place where, where yeah, Lord, I'm going to follow after you and I'm doing pretty good for a while. And then you start flatlining. I call it the two-year plateau. What ends up happening is we come to this, this place where we come to faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we are just growing and everything is great. And you're growing, growing, growing. And then you hit this flat spot where you just kind of plateau. And you're like, wow, I'm not as excited as I used to be. God's word is not as exciting. I'm a little bit distracted. I'm doing things that I wasn't doing a year ago when I came to the Lord, but I'm going back to kind of some of my old ways. Now, I know everyone struggles with these plateaus. And we've got to push back and push out those things when the world wants to creep in, when Satan wants us to compromise within these things. And so in this letter, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we're going to understand that, that Paul is writing to his church to try to get them back on track. He founded the church. In fact, I want you to keep your finger here in Corinthians, but I want you to um, flip back to Acts chapter 18. because I want to read the account of Paul going over to Corinth so that you can kind of get a flavor for, for how the church was founded. In Acts chapter 18, we're just going to read verses 1 through 11. It says this, After these things he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and having received and recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews leave Rome, so these are two Hellenistic Jews. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, they stayed with them, and they were working with him by the trade as tent makers. And as he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
And then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. I love that part. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have no many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So we see the, the plant that happens. Paul goes, and what did he do? He went to the synagogue first. He went to the Jews first. And the Jews didn't want anything to do with him. So he shook off his cloak over the Jews, and he said, you know what? Your blood's on you. And what does he do? He goes next door to the synagogue. And so he starts a church right next to the synagogue and continues to teach, which was great. And the synagogue leader and others had come to faith. And that's how the church had started. And God said, many in this city I have for you to do that work. And so he spent 18 months in establishing the church there in Corinth. We think of churches today, we think of big buildings. Churches in, in that time were not big buildings or big gatherings. They were house churches. So there might be 10, 15, 20, 25 people or so within a house, whatever they would be able to fit into that house. So there's many house churches that were going on in there. Paul writes his letter from Ephesus right before Pentecost. You can read about that in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verse 8. So he's writing from Ephesus just across the sea, and, and he's writing this letter to the church of Corinth. We know that the church was, was founded right around 49 to 51 A.D., but he's writing this letter about 54 to 55 A.D., so it's only about three or four years that the church had declined in their theology. They started out great, but they hit that plateau. And so Paul was having to address this. When we take a look at these letters, the first letter to the church of Corinth, the second letter to the church of Corinth, these are not the only letters. We know of one letter for sure that is missing. This is probably the second or the third letter in order. And what is the letter doing? It's addressing concerns that the church had that sent either orally, there was oral concerns that people would report to Paul, hey, this is going on, you need to address this, or they had questions. So as we go through 1 Corinthians and even 2 Corinthians, you're going to see a dialogue where there's a problem and an answer, a situation and a solution that Paul will address, and then he's going to work through this. So this is a series of corrections and, and truths that Paul is going to be unwrapping for this church that is here. We know that this letter was, the, this letter was in response to something that Stephanus, Fortunus, and Achaeus according to chapter 16, verses 15 to 17, had brought to him. We also know that in reading 1 Corinthians, and I encourage you, when you go home tonight, maybe between now and next week, read all the way through 1 Corinthians as if it was a letter. But one of the things that you're going to get is a tone. As Paul writes this letter, you're going to get the tone that they didn't like Paul all that much right now. That they were actually pushing back against Paul's authority. Paul's leadership. Why? Because they got into this place. How many of y'all have teenagers? You know, when you're a parent and you have kids, you're telling them, 
what to do. When you're, you're a parent of teenagers, the teenagers think you're stupid. That you don't know anything. And what ends up happening is, is they get old enough where they get really smart alecky in some of their responses. Well, that's kind of like what has happened to the church. They've kind of settled into their own, and, and they're disrespecting Paul as the leader that is there. Um, and so he hears about these oral reports, and he has to address them to the church. I love the, pack, the fact that Paul does not back down from theological correction. He goes right out and says, hey, look, this is what you're doing wrong, and this is the theological reason why. So as we work through this, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is to think about where you're at theologically and think about where you're at in, in, in these areas of correction because I believe God's Word is timeless. And there's timeless truths that we can apply to our own lives, right? Within the structure of this letter. We are not above being like the Church of Corinth, both individually and collectively. And we're going to see some things even tonight that we fall short in. So let's dive right into it. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, we have the greetings. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sophonius, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, by calling, and all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and in all knowledge, and even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the end or blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the first thing that Paul does as you look at that is, is he addresses this very much in a, 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 a you know, literary style where he says, this is who's writing it, and this is who I'm writing to. So he identifies himself as Paul. He says, Paul is an apostle. Notice, called an apostle. Of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Sophonius, who was there with him, his brother. Now you say, well, Paul doesn't always do that, but why would he say, this is Paul called an apostle? Well, one of the challenges that the Corinthian church was, was pushing back against is, is Paul's authority. To the hearers of this, here in 54 AD, it was close enough to understand what the office of apostleship was. Paul was identified as one of the apostles, one of the twelve. They would have been in authority. This would be like a church father for sure, being able to do this. And he was called to that position by Jesus Christ himself, Acts chapter 9. He was called on mission to go out and to be able to preach the cross of Jesus. As we see, if you, if you drop your eyes down to verse 17, notice how he says what his mission is. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. I am called by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. That's my calling. Question. What's your calling? 
every Christ follower has a calling. You were called by Jesus Christ, not just unto salvation, but to do something. What is your calling? If someone was asking you, if I was asking you over dinner, what has God called you to? You should be able to answer that. God's called me to this. God's called me to that. Whatever the case may be. God has a specific calling on your life and a purpose for your life. So Paul declared his apostolic credentials because Paul was bringing apostolic authority for correction. If the Corinthians would get this letter and they say, well, who made you my boss? He'd say, well, Jesus did. Jesus put me in charge. There, there has to be order and structure within this. Not just the simple fact, but the problem is Paul was put in authority by Jesus and it's Paul's authority that was being pushed back. Why? Why do people push back against authority? Because they want to live the way they want to live. I want to do what I want to do. You know, I want to do what's right in my own eyes. Well, the problem with that, if you read the book of Judges... When every man did that which was right in his own eyes, then came destruction, right? Do we see that in our world today? Everybody does what they feel is right. And they push back against authority and they push back against the structure, the structure that is there, that ends into destruction. Paul was called by God. Notice, he was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I love this passage. Because in modern churches, we have lost some sense of authority within the structure. Within the structure of the church, we have some churches that are what's called congregational rule. Where the spiritual authority becomes a hireling of the church. And the church tells the spiritual authority, hence the pastor, what to do. Well, that doesn't work so good. Because as a pastor, if I have to give an answer for you, I better have the responsibility and the authority over you. And if I don't have that, that just makes me a hireling. And so Paul establishes this and says, I'm called by the will of God. I was hired by God, not by you. And therefore I answer to God, not to you. Which I think is important for the church to understand. That under the authority of God. Who is he writing to? Notice in verse 2, to the church of God, or literally, to the church which belongs to God at Corinth. This church belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. This is God's church at Warren Community Fellowship. Just like the church down the street is the church of God at Warren Baptist, or the church of God at Branches, or the church of God at Grace. It belongs to God. It doesn't belong to any one man, person. It belongs to God. The location is at Corinth. Paul is trying to get these guys outside of their head that they are in their own box. But speaking to the church universal, what does the word church mean? Ecclesia. It's the Greek word meaning called out. The church are those that are called out of the world. In Corinth, as I shared with you guys, was a very corrupt society, wasn't it? And so they're called out of that society. We are a church that is in Oregon that is called out of living as Oregonians. 
We are not Oregonians. We are the church of God that exists in Oregon. Now, we can wrap our head around that concept. Will that change the way that we live? Will that change who we submit to? Will that change the structure and the standard by which we live by? For sure. But the problem is, is when we start settling in, we become citizens of the world rather than citizens of heaven. we got a problem. And we got to push back against it. So Paul is, from the get-go, is saying, look it, you are called out, and you are called out to be sanctified. Notice, sanctified, set apart. The word is hagios. It means to set apart for a holy purpose. In Christ Jesus, data, in Christ, you are God's possession. Set apart for a holy purpose in Christ Jesus to do something different than the world. Not to be like the world. To be, as he says, made holy or the holy ones. The problem is, the church at Corinth was developing divisions because they were no longer holy. They were living for themselves. Where do divisions come from? An identity problem. The divisions come from an identity problem because you don't see yourself as a child of God or a member of part of God's family. You see yourself as your own king. That it's your church. That it's your body. That it's your choice. No. We are called out ones under note the Lordship, as he says, on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means he's in charge. Lord means Lord. Listen to this phrase and tell me what, why it sounds wrong. No, Lord. Can we do that? Can you say, no, Lord? No, because he can't be Lord and you tell him no. It doesn't work that way. It's always yes, Lord, because he's sovereign. But Paul, in his introduction, goes on with a blessing. And he gives this, which is a pattern of his own. He says, grace and peace from God our Father. Notice the plural, our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings both in. And he, he establishes peace. He, it's a reference or an echo to the what's called the ironic blessing. Uh, Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. That whole ironic blessing within that. And then Paul gives out this this blessing of thankfulness in verses 4 through 9. He, he breaks out and he says, I thank God, my God, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him. He's a thankful spirit. And I, he comes in a thankful spirit. And Paul gives thanks to God for what God has done. When we take a look at being able to be in, in that place of, of a spiritual parent to somebody else, and there's correction. It's always best to come at them and be thankful for what God is doing. Bring the blessing and then bring the correction. Bring the kindness and then bring the, the correction or the corrective behavior that's with that. To within this. To develop a teachable spirit. When Paul would consider the miracle of, of the believers in Corinth, he was thankful he was thankful for what God is doing in, in Corinth because these people that, that were there were a blessing. What was the work that God was doing? Grace. Grace. 
This group of people that were in this ungodly New York, Las Vegas, Los Angeles lifestyle that was in this horrendous cesspool of people were being saved. Isn't that amazing? That God would take these people that were in this wretch, this grace, and it was a grace that was given by God. It's a grace that enriches us. It's a grace that's confirmed in, in our fellowship. It's a grace that brings... Think about God's grace. Where were you prior to coming to know Christ? Who were you prior to coming to know Christ? Do you realize that God saw you in your yuck and said, I choose you? What's amazing is that God saw you in your yuck before you were ever in your yuck because he saw you before the foundations of the world and he chose you. And he called you by name. And he showered you with his grace. And these grace gifts that are in Christ Jesus. No one is self-sufficient. No one. We do not add to our salvation, our holiness, not one iota. Not one ounce. Here is an encouragement for you. Sometime before the end of this week. Take 30 minutes and consider the grace of God towards you. Go somewhere and find that time where you can just sit and think about what God has blessed you with. How has God enriched your life and brought blessing to you? When we consider the grace of God in our life, we stop looking for the things of the world. But when we stop considering the grace of God in our life, we become distracted by the things of the world. Meditating on the grace of God is going to be a sheer cure to understand how enriched a person is. How rich are you in Christ? How rich do you realize that you will never, ever taste of death? Oh yeah, this body may die. But the eternal damnation, you'll never taste of that. You'll never experience the wrath of God. This is the most hell you'll ever see. God's given you hope. God's given you a future. You've been enriched with something that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. A spiritual knowledge. Do you realize that you have the capability to hear the voice of God? You have the capability... To hear from the eternal creator of the universe and he speaks to you. And knows you by name. Knows the hairs that are, count, that are on your head and some of us are losing them more than others. We have been given the words of eternal life. Do you realize that? That is a grace gift that God has given to you. That, that has blessed you and says, look, at here is eternal life. The words that, that are there. And not only for you, but for you to participate in somebody else's salvation. Do you realize what a blessing that is? God can use you to be part of an eternal solution for someone else that is dying spiritually. That's powerful when you consider that. 
And we think about the values of these gifts that God has given us, these grace gifts that he speaks of within this. And they're all for the building up of the body of Christ. God has given us these spiritual gifts. And there's no one gift. I said earlier, think about what is your calling. Here's my second question. What is your spiritual gift? What has God gifted you uniquely with for His glory? But what has God given to you uniquely to be used? Every single person has at least one. Maybe it's a gift of hospitality. Gift of mercy. The gift of giving. Gift of teaching. Gift of prayer. Something that when you operate in the Spirit, this particular gift, you are free. And you are blessing others and building up the body of Christ. Paul's was evangelism. He knew his calling, he knew his gift, and he knew and he was blessed by the, how the gifts were being used in the church of Corinth. Yet, within this, there were some difficulties that were going on. Look at verses 10, uh, verses 10 on. In this next section... It actually is chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 4, 21. We're not going to go that far. But Paul has to deal with this, this problem with division. Because here's, here's the difficulty with this church. It grew for three years and was growing. But because they stopped enjoying the gift of God and walking in the Spirit of God, they started plateauing. Oh, wait a minute. I'm growing, and then I'm plateauing. Why? Because I stopped operating in the Spirit. I stopped operating in the gift. And division started happening. Why? Because they took their eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they started taking, putting their eyes on themselves. And there was divisions and schisms that were going on. So Paul has to address this. It was from an oral report that he had received that the church was quarreling. Now, I know the modern-day church never fights amongst each other. That, all the, that it was just something that the church of Corinth did in their time, but the modern-day church, we never argue, do we? No. We're going to change the carpet next week. I'll tell you what color it's going to be. We're going to have a committee, and we're going to determine... No, it doesn't work that way. You know, the problem with the church is we've got broken people that are in it. And when we lose sight of what's going on, we start messing things up. And that happened here in the church of Corinth. He says this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you... Be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each of you, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am Cephas, and I am Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that they were baptized in my name. Well, now I did also baptize um, the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
not in the cleverness of the speech, so as the cross or the cross of Christ would not be made void. Well, what was happening was he had received this oral report of divisions and destructive quarrels that would have happened in the church. And it had come to him that they were arguing over leadership. The leadership had become points of division. As the church grew, so did the house churches that were around and the leaders that were in there and different uh, types of leaders. One of the fights was over wisdom. Now, in the culture, this is where the culture creeped in. In the the Greco-Roman culture of Corinth that had come in, wisdom was premier. So they were seeking the ones that were wise. They were looking for the wisest teacher that was within the church of Corinth. They were looking for the one who had it all together. And so whether it was this teacher or that teacher, it was all on the premise of wisdom, and they were becoming puffed up and exalted. So much so that they were saying, I am a follower of Apollos. I am a follower of Cephas. I'm a follower of of Paul. I'm a follower of Christ. And what had happened is they were puffed up looking at these ideas of ministry, and they started elevating a ministry over another ministry. And saying, well, this guy is better than this guy. He knows more than this guy. And all of this. And they started getting just very divisive within this. Yet they all came from the same core of people as we read in Acts 18. Did we not? They all came from the same group. And as they were growing in their faith, so did the growing in the teachers, and they were operating within the gifts. But then they started boasting about their human leaders. and became divided over these leaders within this. The problem is the church had started seeking division instead of seeking unity. Is that a problem? Sure. Sure, it's a problem. It's a problem because they had developed these divisions. The Greek word for division here is schismata. And it literally means splits that are there. He says you should all be of the same mind. Now, there is a, the ability to have unity in diversity. Because it was the same mind in Christ, right? Unity. But you can celebrate the diversity that, that is available with the different people that were there. The source were closed people that were there, and, and as they were growing, they were declaiming or name-dropping. Do we ever have that in, in our church world today? Sure. I go to this church, I go to that church. I go to this church, this mega church. I'm, I'm after this pastor or that pastor and all these name-dropping kind of things. As if being a part of a specific church or following a specific pastor would elevate you spiritually. Is there a danger in that? Sure. What's the danger? Pride. Pride. Well, I go to I I, I listen to so and so, or I listen to so and so, and they start doing this name dropping stuff. And the danger is this: if I'm saying I'm going to church X Y Z, I'm going to Warren Community Fellowship, and Pastor Kerry is my pastor. I'm implying your pastor is less than. Is that appropriate? No. May it never be. May it never be. What ends up happening is we have these name-dropping rivalries that go on 
as if one is better than the other. But as I said earlier, just as Paul was called with his special gifts, every single one is called with a special gift. And we need to celebrate that unity in diversity. But these theological divisions were, were being wrung out by the people that were there creating a separation in the church. It's hard enough to be a church today. It's even harder to be a unified church when the church is fighting amongst itself within that problem. We are celebrating something that and attempting to do something that we've been working towards for quite a while. Good Friday, we are going to be having a, a unified Good Friday service at Scapoose High School. We have four different churches that are going to be meeting together. We invited a number of them. Four are going to come. What I'm super excited is a new Hispanic church called True Love that is meeting over at Warren Baptist. And so as we do a unified Good Friday service, we have four different pastors that are going to be doing it. One of is Hispanic, but the whole thing is going to be translated into Spanish. So we're going to have a Spanish translator that is there. Why? To bring the church together. To be able to do that work within that. Now we've got to understand that we must be unified on the same theology. For us, the evangelical, but it's not ecumenical. We draw the line between orthodoxy and heresy. We will be orthodox, ortho, we will have the same orthodoxy and orthopraxy. In other words, the, the evangelical position that Bible teaches. But we can't be unified with those that call themselves a church that are teaching heresy. That is not what Paul is saying. He's unifying the church. There is a movement of ecumenicalism that says basically it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. Is that dangerous? Absolutely it's dangerous. But Paul is speaking to a group of people that have the same foundation in Christ Jesus. Notice how many times in Corinthians he says, in Christ Jesus. That is the grounding point, that theologically that we are in Christ Jesus within this. The other problem with this is the illusion. If you take a look at the name dropping or the titles that they said, they say, what is common in verse 12? Look at it really closely. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. What's repeated? I. Well, you got an I problem. Because when you have an I problem, you make it all about you. And when you have an I problem, then you are self-focused. And you are not focused on unity. So Paul comes back with a statement in verse 13. Has Christ been divided? In other words, did you chop Christ up? Are you the arm that's cut off of the body now? Are you the head cut off of the body? Because if we are all the body of Christ, and Christ is the head, then we are to be unified. Christ is not divided. And then he says this in verse 13, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Notice how like sharp he gets. I didn't die on the cross for you, did I? Why are you worshiping me? I'm just a teacher. 
and you're not baptized in my name, I have no saving power. Neither do any of these other teachers. It is all centered on Christ. The idea of the cross and the baptism is married together in Romans 6. One baptism, one faith, one God, one resurrection, and all in Jesus Christ. That is the focus, and that's what unites the body of Christ together. And we should not divide it. God is not divided, neither is His body. But the problem is, Paul goes on and and says, look at, even in my own ministry. I didn't baptize a bunch of you. Why? Because that's not my calling. My calling is evangelism. Well, I did baptize a few. But that's not my main thing. Paul operated in his lane. And he's got to understand, and we have to understand, that, that we need to stay within our lane. Paul's mission was evangelism, to preach the gospel. He didn't also preach, seek to preach it with great eloquence or wisdom. He didn't put on the mega church show in order to draw people to himself or do this waxing eloquent. And again, for the church of Corinth, if you spoke eloquently with great wisdom and using big words, then you tantalized the people. Paul didn't do it. In fact, he kept the cookies on what we call the lower shelf. He kept it simple and simply teaching it. The problem is, though, that divisions in the carnality begin to detract from God's word and it's against God's wisdom. If you look at, the, we'll look at the, the latter part of this. He says this, for, for is the connection to verse 17. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being, that's a present active imperative, or I'm sorry, present active participle. Those are those that are being, and it's a continue action, in being saved. It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, and I will set it aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. For indeed, Jews asked for a sign, Greeks asked for a search for wisdom. But we, notice we, preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says, I didn't come to you with great wisdom or flowery speech. I brought you the gospel. Why? Because I trust in the gospel. It's the gospel that saves. What is Paul saying? I'm not the one that saves you. Jesus is. Don't put me up on that pedestal. Don't start worshiping me. The wisdom of God is foolishness to man, though, because if you ever talk to somebody and you try to share the gospel with them, and they look at you like, like you're a rock, you share the gospel with them and you're like, huh? Not a clue. Why is that? Because they lack the Holy Spirit. They lack the work of the Holy Spirit. They are dense. They are dumb. In fact, it's foolish. If you think about this for a moment, 
from a logical standpoint, one man died 2,000 years ago, and you put your faith in that man that died over 2,000 years ago, and you'll be saved for all eternity. Make sense? No. And the world looks at you and says, you're speaking another language. I don't get it. You're right. You don't. Because these things are spiritually discerned. And if you lack the Holy Spirit, you're not going to discern them. We need to understand that we're working and talking with people that are clueless about the gospel. And we need to start with the cross to show the difference. And, and so what Paul says is, look, at, you're falling back into the wisdom of the world and its foolishness. To those who are being saved, it's the power of God. There is a distinction between the two. You're trusting in wisdom, and wisdom of the world is foolishness. I love what he quotes here in verse 19. In verse 19, verse, uh, verse 19 he's quoting Isaiah 29, 14. And he says this, Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with his people, wondrously and marvelously, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish. And the discernment of the discerning men will be concealed. You know why I like that? Because all the people that think that they're all that smart, God's going to reveal how dumb they really are. But you think about what Paul was asking and what we ask people to do. To the Jews, to the Jews, what was the cross? Anybody that died on the cross to the Jew, what were they considered? Cursed. To anybody that would die on the cross, to the Gentile, they thought they would think he's a fool, lacks wisdom, he's a thief, he's worthless. Yet Paul's message says, you believe that the Son of God came and died on the cross and putting your faith in him, that he died for your sins, will bring about salvation. Yet, Paul stayed with that message. Why? Because it's the power of God that saves. At some point in time, when the gospel was shared with you, did the light come on? Did you realize, yes, I'm a sinner? My sins separate me from God. That if I, if I put my faith and trust in God, who wants to be in relationship with me, that Jesus died on my behalf for my sins, that I'll be saved. There is that element. I love the fact that Paul didn't shy away from keeping the cross as the central message of the gospel. And he didn't try to talk people into salvation. He presented the cross and allowed the Holy Spirit to do the work. I have witnessed to, I don't know how many thousands of people. And I've shared the gospel so many times I can't even count. And I am always surprised when God does something amazing. For example... Not last Sunday, but the week before Sunday. I finished second service, gave the message, didn't give an altar call like a good Baptist boy should. And a woman comes up and says, I want to make sure that I'm going to go to heaven. I want to, I want to know that my sins are going to be forgiven. So you want to be sure of that? She says, yeah, right now? Yeah. I'd like to pray with you. And she accepted the Lord right here two weeks ago. We look at that. I didn't plan that. That's a God thing. 
When you do that stuff, you just are trusting in God. You deliver the word and keep Christ the center of the message and allow the Holy Spirit to do that work within that. And, and it is something that God does. I got done with the message and thought, well, that tanked. And God said, well, yeah, because I used the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, you fool. And God uses knuckleheads like me, but he can use knuckleheads like you. You just got to make yourself available. And so he says this, where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? God has made the foolish, the wisdom of the world. But since the wisdom of of God, the world through the wisdom has not come to know God. In other words, the wisest man in the world, the smartest man in the world, cannot know God unless the Holy Spirit does the work. Doesn't matter what your IQ is. Doesn't matter what school you go to. You cannot know God apart from the Holy Spirit. Impossible. He says, Where are they? They're not there because it's a complete work of God. And so God reveals how the foolishness of the world looks for signs, they look for wisdom, and they're never going to find it. But Paul continued to preach the gospel. And Christ crucified. And we know that over 2,000 years, thousands and thousands and millions and millions of people have come to faith with that simple message. God chooses the weak. Look at verse 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren. Remember I asked you, what was your calling? For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world to dis- and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that, here's this purpose, He may nullify the things that are, so that, purpose, no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasted boast in the Lord. Amen. You look at that. Who are you that God would consider you? Are you all that special? Nope. But that's okay. Because God uses the foolish things and the base things and the despised things for his glory. Don't try to be something you're not. Just be who you are and let the Holy Spirit do that work in you. And the next time Satan says, you are not worth it, remind him of the cross. Because God says you are. And the next time Satan says, well, you can't do anything, remind him of the cross. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The next time he says, you don't have a message to give, remind him of Jesus Christ crucified. And that Satan, you lost. And because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, people are saved. That's the message. It's not the wise or the proud. It's the cross and the message of the cross. And Paul's mission was to preach the cross. As he does so here in chapter 2, he says, and when. Notice what he does in these 16 verses. It is one almost continuous statement. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come to you with superiority of speech 
were of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ himself crucified. Underline that, highlight that, memorize that. That's your mission statement. To determine nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Notice what he says. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not persuasive words or wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, so that, here's the purpose, your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Yet, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature in wisdom. However, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just as it is written, things which the eye have not seen and the ear has not heard, which we have not entered in the heart of man, all that God has prepared for him, for those who loved him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. These things which we also speak, not in the words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man does not look or does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And they can't understand them because they're spiritually apprised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Note, for who has known the mind of the Lord that we will instruct him, but we will have the mind of Christ. Paul ended that in what's called an ecclusio. In the beginning he says, you do not have the same mind of the same mind. And he ends the statement with, and we all have this mind of Christ. When we come down to this place of, of thinking that we are all that, stop. You are not all that. The only reason why you exist, and the only reason why I exist, the only reason why we can do anything is because of the Spirit of God that is in and through us. If we rely on man's wisdom, human wisdom, we will not understand the things of God. The natural man cannot. When you open your Bible, before you start reading, pray. Holy Spirit, teach me. When you read through a passage and you meditate on it, you pray. Holy Spirit, teach me. Don't try to wax eloquent about the things that you think. Who can know the mind of God? Only God. How can you speak the mind of God? Only by the Holy Spirit of God. You need to be in that place. It is a terrifying thing. When Paul came to them, he says, I was in fear and trembling. Why? Because he was representing the Holy God that is there. And he had one message, to preach Jesus Christ and crucify. Here's a problem. If I can talk you into heaven... Satan can talk you out. If God, the Spirit of God, transforms your life, Satan is powerless against you. Do not listen to the wisdom of man. 
or the things of man. But focus on the things of God. As Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God will make known the riches and the glory and the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Connecting with the mind of God. How do you do that, the Holy Spirit? These guys were so focused on their teachers and human wisdom, they were missing it. You want to know how to get off the plateau? Stop listening to people and start listening to God. You want to know how to grow? Pray that the Holy Spirit would open up the mind of God to you. You want to know how to mature? Get into the Word of God and let God teach you these things that you need to grow by. The Holy Spirit is the one that unlocks the mysteries of God. Paul would write, later write in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unfathomable are His ways. One of the ways that you can tell if you've plateaued is this. When you come to a church service, and it doesn't matter any church that is teaching the Word of God, or you pick up your Bible and you read it, and you go, I didn't get anything out of that. Was it God's fault? Is it your fault? If you're not getting anything out of the Word of God, I can tell you this, it's not because God has run out of things to say to you. It's because you stopped listening. You're spiritually disconnected. Paul wanted these guys to understand this. It's not about the messenger, it's about the message. And the message always comes from God, and it's interpreted by the Holy Spirit, from the mind of God to you via the Holy Spirit. That's why we are being transformed and changed, because of the work of God that is in us. As we continue this study, it's going to be a challenge, because it's going to challenge our complacency and our apathy. It's going to challenge our behaviors, and that's okay. What is your homework assignment? Read 1 Corinthians. The other part, sometime between now and the end of the week, meditate on the grace of God. But before you do that, pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal it to you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can be in this place, that we can study your word, we can grow by the grace and knowledge that you've given to us. God, you are amazing. Your ways are far above our ways. Your word is truth. Your word is right. Holy Spirit, you're the one that transformed. Lord, I would pray. I ask. Holy Spirit, fall fresh upon this room even now. Those that are watching, even on, on video. That you would bring revival to our hearts. Convict us of plateauing. Convict us of divisiveness, of self-love and and self-focus. May we take our eyes off of self and put them on you. And may we seek out your wisdom and your wisdom of truth. And lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. As we close out with this song, make it a worship song from your heart. Think about the words and the expression that come out. In a heavenly dance, oh God, all that you are. 
myself in you as we go out for the rest of our week. I delight myself in you, in the glory of your presence. I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed by you. God, I run into your arms, unashamed. Amen. Praise Jesus. We'll see you on Sunday. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.